This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Okay, afternoon everybody. This is the besotted pride of West London social in the pub. We, we don't go to the pub very often to record stuff, to be quite honest with you. So this is a bit of a strange experience for us. But anyway, like I said to you, besotted pride of West London social in the pub. And uh, we decided we've never done a match day social before. As, uh, as our guest is actually uh, giving his prompts, but we've never done a match day social before. We just thought this will be the first experience for us to actually try and get some old Brentford players. We can chat with them on match day, and uh, players, people can come down, get down here an hour or so early, get yourself a few beers, and, uh, and enjoy yourselves. So we've done this today, and like I said to you, it's our first unfiltered session, as we call it. And unfiltered means that hopefully our guest here will be telling us all the information totally unfiltered. There'll be no filters, it'll be telling it as it is. Um, as we know, we, we're all into the manners. So manners says that we actually have to just give the thanks earlier on to, to everyone who's helped us out with this. First of all, obviously, we want to thank the Globe for actually you know, putting us on this event on for us here today as well. Excellent pub. And we actually opened this little, this little section here. They actually called it the Besotted Den. So uh, this is our first event here since the... Yeah, that's right, the Man Cave. The first event that we did with, uh, with Marcus Gale and uh, Iger Anderson and Terry Evans in here about a year ago, I think that was, in the Besotted Dead. So thanks very much to the Globe. We also want to thank very much to Fullers for uh, watering us today as well. Everyone that's come here, hopefully you've got your pride of uh, uh, London Pride unfiltered as well. So hopefully you've got your vouchers for that. If you checked in with Claire there on the door... Once you check in, she'll give you a voucher for your London Pride Unfiltered. So everyone, you know, you can say cheers, as we say. <laughs> and, uh, and, and other than that, I mean, I think, I think we've, uh, we've said all our thanks. Is there anybody else that we need to thank to? Because we, we, we thanks thank to now. Claire. Thanks to we Claire. We to thank Claire for sorting that out as well. You know, we always thank at the beginning because by the time we've had about three or four beers, we, we can't remember anything at the end, you know what I'm saying? So we, we do all our thanks at the beginning. And uh, another person, obviously, we would like to thank. We've got to thank our guest here. Our guest that we've got today, down today, is Mr. Bob Booker. It started off being a different song, if I remember. Yeah, it was Bob Booker, Brentford legend, as we would say. And one more thank you, I'd say, obviously, for Greville Waterman as well, who... Who has been liaising with us here and helped us to get us Bob Booker down here for this event as well? And Bob um, Greville's involved in the UR Bob Booker um, book, which is on sale as well, which we will talk about later, no doubt. Or Bob will talk about that later. Indeed. If, any, if anyone, any of you can read, it's, uh, it's a must, must read book. That's right. So, anyway, so thanks for that. So, we've got Bob Booker here at the social. Just a little bit of history, though. Bob Booker. Brentford player made 250 appearances across two stays. For Brentford, he played 231 games, first of all. That's 207 plus 44 
appearances on that one, and he scored 41 goals in his first day. Then he went to Sheffield United, played 109 games, that's 91 plus 18 appearances, and he scored 13 goals. And then he came back to Brentford, 19 appearances, that's 15 um, plus 4 appearances, and he scored 2 goals. Bob Booker. That's right, it did indeed. Bob Booker, welcome to Back to Brentford. Cheers, Billy. Do you want me to hold that or do you want to hold it? Yep, yep thank you. Uh, thanks to you guys for turning up today and uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, Billy and Dave obviously got in contact with Greville, so I'm more than happy to come down here because Brentford was a... Yeah, a bit late, lads, are you? You all right? Um, yeah. yeah, that means you get the beers in, all right? So, yeah, so... Really pleased to be here today. Uh, open to any questions. We can have a chat, whatever you fancy. Obviously, Billy and, and Dave are going to lead, the, lead along, and I'll just jump along, and like I did in my football career, make it up as I go along. So what we'll do is we'll do the usual thing that you want to do. We're very, very, very sad, actually, because we've been up all night last night actually preparing a, a special quiz. We had a sort of special inter, uh, audience interaction section, and it was all meant to be on the screen here today, but we've had technical difficulties today. That's, that's my excuse anyway, so it's like... It's our age. That's right, yeah, we didn't know actually how to sort of get the abacus going. So unfortunately, the, the quiz element, so we might have to just sort of kind of play around that a little bit later. So, but what we're going to do is that we're going to do our usual thing. We'll have our in conversation with Session. So we'll chat to Bob and we'll be pulling out a little bit of elements throughout his career and he'll be chatting about them. And if you've got any questions as well, stick your hand up that's we'll right. come to you. And then at the back end of it as well, we'll order you lot to just come in and you can ask Bob as many questions as you like, which is all good. So, but anyway, let's start off because Bob Booker, he signed for Brentford. And, uh, but before that, you, an apprentice upholsterer, is that correct? Yes, I was. I mean, I left, uh, I wanted to leave school very, very early because I hated it, really. I hated it so much, I even used to get other people to do my homework. That's how much I hated it. All I was interested in was my running and keeping fit and uh, sports sessions. That's all I wanted, really. So uh, I decided that I wanted to leave school at, at 16 and uh, I wanted to be a cabinet maker, first and foremost, which was obviously making cabinets that you have in your kitchens, etc., etc. Something to do. I wanted to do something that was sort of good with my hands, hopefully, not so much my feet at the time. So uh, I made my way. My sister used to work in a bank, Barclays Bank, down in Watford, and they had a furniture factory behind the bank. So I uh, decided just to turn up, really, a bit like you do, and knock on the door, and went in and saw the foreman, who uh, really shit the life out of me. He was like Hitler, really, but even my first thoughts of him. And I said to him, I want to I be a cabinet maker. He said, well, we haven't got any cabinet maker's jobs at the moment, but we've got uh, a job as an upholsterer, which is covering furniture. I thought, hmm, I wonder what that's going to be like. You know, I don't really want to go back to school. So he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you start and have a go at this, and then... When the cabinet making job comes up, we'll give you a tug and you can go on and be a cabinet maker. Well, I, so I started as the upholsterer and I, I worked as an apprentice, what you call a proper apprentice in them days, one that got his hands dirty and got on his hands and knees and done all the work. And I had, I had six or seven guys that I used to look after, so I had to make sure that all their equipment was ready, uh, make their tea, go and get their lunch, do all the bits that really, what I call, ground you really as a, as a person. Uh, and I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I got, my, got my hands dirty and I got my teeth into the job. And the fellas were great. There was a load of banter going on. Uh, and it really sort of just got me into what I call the real world out of school. So uh, before I know it, I was well into the apprenticeship and didn't even look back to do the, the cabinet making job. So, you know, that, that carried on for about sort of about a year. 
Uh, I was just playing local park football for a team called uh, Rangers uh, and Bedman. So, not the Rangers, it was just a Rangers. And also, I, I sort of moved up a grade from local morning Saturday football to a team called Bedman Social, which was quite a, a close village to me, which, in fact, Dave Bassett, who became one of my managers, he lived there. Derek French, who became my physio, who lived there at Sheffield United. And Vinnie Jones, you might know the name. Anyone know Vinnie Jones? You know, that little man. So he was, uh, he was slightly, he, yeah, he was slightly uh, younger than me at the time, so he was sort of just below in the reserves or the youth team. And I was, I was in the first team, uh, so I started to play for them. I played up front. Uh, you probably you know, know my style. It's a bit sort of cut and thrust and had a go and run around. I scored a lot of goals. I was missing a lot of goals as well. Uh, and it's all about lucky breaks, really, because at the time, my manager was a fellow called Dave Bromley, who's passed away, unfortunately, now. But he's, he's the main culprit because I think he saw something in me that he thought I could do a little bit better. And... And to be fair, as Greville knows, that football wasn't really on the radar for me. Not as a professional. I was just enjoying working, playing. You know, in them days, what you did, you played Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon. You played Sunday morning. You went down the pub, got pissed, and back to work on Monday. And that, that was basically my life. Uh, and, and Dave, being the fellow he was, he happened to know, and you probably might have heard of the fellow called Willis Hall. He was a director of Brentford at the time. And he did the programme Wurzel Gummidge. Remember him? Wurzel Gummidge? Cup of tea and a slice of cake. He'd he done that programme. I do impersonations as well. He'd done, he done that programme. And Dave Bromley used to do his garden for him. Landscape gardening. What's funny about that? Person invading the footballer, yeah. I was waiting for that one. I've been doing it for 35 years. I think I've done all right. Uh, yeah, so he, he approached uh, Willis Hall and said, could you give this lad I've got playing for Bedmond a, a trial? Uh, and Willis Hall had a word with Bill Dodgin, God rest his soul, what a great man, what a great manager. Who remembers Bill Dodgin? Yeah, yeah. some of you still remember? Yeah, well, he's, uh, he was my first ever, ever manager, so, you know, a legend in my book. And uh, so I got this trial, and I was absolutely shitting myself, I've got to be honest, because I was only been playing park football. So I went in and saw my foreman, uh, George, uh, was a bit scared about approaching him, whether he'd let me have the time off or not, because it was on a Tuesday afternoon. And he said, no, you've got, to, you've got to go and have a game. And all the lads were really helping me go and have the game. So uh, I even went into work in the morning from about 8 o'clock till 10. And then I travelled straight up to Griffin Park. And funny enough, the trial was against Brighton, who I ended up working for as assistant manager for 11 years. And uh, so I went up to the game, completely out of my depth. Uh, went down the tunnel in the old days there, it was right down the bottom. Got into the dressing room. I remember all the players in there. I remember the first player that I touched eyes on was Paul Walker, who uh, was a little tenacious little midfield player that we had at this club. And I remember watching him for England, Schoolboys International, and scored two goals at Wembley. And that sort of stuck in my mind. I thought, yeah, I remember you. Uh, there was Willie Graham. There was uh, John Fraser. Uh, there was uh, Paul Shrub. Paul Pretty in goal. A few names that just spring to mind, as probably some of your memories do. And I just sat in that dressing room. And that was quite a daunting dressing room to be in at the time because I'd just come from non-league football and I'm sitting in a professional dressing room. All the kits hung up. That's the first thing I noticed. I was normally used to picking it out of a bag in the middle of the room. So I noticed that straight away. Uh, and I just went out at the trial and uh, right place at the right time and scored two goals. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, yeah, I ain't done too bad there, have I? You know, thinking about it, I scored two goals. Uh, you might remember the great Peter Ward. Thank you, Claire. 
You might remember the great Peter Ward. He played in that game. He was a legend for Brighton. And I scored two goals, and we lost 3-2 against, against uh, Brighton. And after the game, went up to the office to see Bill Dodging. And he was happy what he saw. He said, uh, do you want the mic back or shall I carry on? He was happy what he saw. And uh, he said, yeah, we'd like to see a little bit more of you. Would you be prepared to come up and have some training? I don't want to tell too much because it's all in the book. <laughs> Slight... <laughs> slightly... I'm, I'm telling it slightly different, so you've still got to read it. All right. twelve ninety nine on Amazon. Uh, so Bill Dodging invited me back for some extra training. Well, I thought that was going to be a problem because I was just in the throes of finishing my apprenticeship and my dad always said to me, son, get yourself a trade. What a load of old shit that was. <laughs> Go and do what you want to do. So, uh, yeah, so I went back and told George and said, look, the trial went well. I scored two goals. They've asked me if I could come up for a month's, month's training, three weeks or a month's training on a regular basis. So he said, yeah, yeah, you, you should go up and do that. So uh, I remember that I got picked up by Pat Cruz the first time. Remember Pat Cruz? What a great centre-half. He, he wasn't the biggest Pat Cruz, but he was quality in the air. And, uh, and he could drink. That was my... <laughs> he, could, he could have a social cruise. He, that was my worry. He also turned up like bleeding Lewis Hamilton outside my house, screeching in a Ford Cortina Mark II. He was the worst driver, and I'm a driving instructor now, so if I'd have been in that car with him now, I'd have been crapping myself. So Cruzy took me to training, on a, on a, and I went up there on a, on a regular basis, which was absolutely fantastic, but I was in awe, you know. I remember turning up in the car park, and not like these days where there's Bentleys and Ferraris, there was like Astras and Fiestas and, and things like that, uh, Reliant Robins. So, but that, that, was, that was a tough time because I was in with the big boys then and I just sort of got on written. And Andy McCulloch, uh, he, he, yeah, he took me under his wing, to be fair. And we, me and Greville met him the other week at one of the home games and he was, we were so pleased to see each other. Uh, I told him to make sure he got to buy a book because his name's in it. And uh, he, he, he took me under his wing a little bit, to be fair. And, he, you know, he showed me how to sort of try and head the ball and where I should run and a bit of extra training. So he, he was absolutely brilliant. A lot of the other players didn't really give a shit about me because I was just a non-league player, probably getting in the way. But uh, you slowly make, made my mark on it, and uh, it, it just turned out that after what they'd seen, then Bill Dodging called me in the office again on a Wednesday afternoon, and I went in there, and he said, we like what we see, we want to sign you pro. <laughs> it, was as, it was as simple as that. It was a bizarre conversation, really. We want to sign you pro. I'm going to ask a question. I mean... They say Brentford is tin pot, but they signed you. And I heard the fee wasn't a regular fee now, was it, Bob? I think it was a set of tracksuits. <laughs> I think it was that one there, actually. Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a set of tracksuits given to uh, Bedman Football Club. And I thought that was well worth the money, I've got to be honest. You know, I, was, uh, I wasn't worth nothing, was I? I was just a non-league player. Uh, and Bill Dodging said, yeah, we'd like to sign you. Uh, I said, right, OK. He said, will you be able to... Well, you better leave work. I said, well, yeah, I've just about finished my apprenticeship. I'm sure that'll be fine, gaffer. Uh, so he said, right, uh, we're going to... Uh, there's your contract. You put it in front of me. And I didn't know what I was looking at, really. It was just a blur, to be fair. And uh, he said, it's a, a year contract, and we're going to pay you £60 a week. Well, I was on 200 at the time in 1979, believe it or not. I was on piecework, so I was earning good money as a 19-year-old. As a, a and I, uh, I said, yeah, where's the pen? So uh, I signed the contract, I went home, and then uh, told my mum that I'd sign in professional football. She went, oh, that's fantastic, you know, brilliant, you're going to 
earn a bit more money and all that, you know. You uh, don't quite work like that, Mum. Uh, what, what do you mean? I said, well, I've signed for £60 a week. She said, you give me 20 you're going to have 40 left. And, you know, didn't have a car, I had a little motorbike. But I didn't even think about that at the time. And it wasn't on the radar, but I just thought, I can't turn this opportunity down. It's in front of me. I'm not going to go away, can I think about it? Or, you know, what do I do? I just said, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fantastic. And looked at my manager, uh, Dave Bromley, and he's just like, you know, what's going on? It was quite bizarre, really, because it doesn't really happen on a day-to-day basis. So I, I signed a contract and come home. Uh, and... Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks later, and we'd done a bit of training, and then he pulled me in again and he said, oh, you're in the squad for Saturday? And this is, I'd only just signed pro. I thought, what, I'm in the squad? What do you mean I'm in the squad? He said, yeah, we're playing Watford. And Watford was my home club. That's where I was born and bred. That's where all my mates were, all my family were. He said, yeah, and this was on a Wednesday. He said, so, yeah, you're in the squad. We want you to turn up at Vicarage Road. No point in coming into Brentford to get on the coach to go back to Watford to play the game. But no, no, that's okay. So, uh, he said, just meet us at the ground at half past one. All right, Gaffer, yeah, no problem, yeah. And I'm driving home thinking, I ain't even got a suit. I haven't even got a tie. I ain't even got a pair of shoes. Because I didn't in days, I was just a factory worker. I was a jean and a trainer boy, I liked rock music, had a motorbike. And I didn't, didn't really possess a suit. So on the Saturday morning before I, I turned up at Vicarage Road, me and my mum went down to Watford and we went to Marks and Sparks and she bought me a suit. And she bought me a tie and a shirt and a pair of shoes. And in them days, in them days, you looked after your own boots, which I did. So my nan used to clean my boots and I used to give her sixpence. <laughs> you laugh. Do you remember the old dubbing? Yeah. My, my nan used to clean my boots with dubbing and I used to give her sixpence and she loved it. So and they was always the best boots ever at training. So I turned up at Vicarage Road like you do with all my family going to be there on the terraces. My dad, my mates, everybody I knew in Watford. Uh, thinking I'm just going to be like, a spare one, really, not even on the bench or anything like that. I thought it was just a little bit of experience. So uh, I turned up at Vigard Road and knock on the players' entrance and opened up and went, yeah, can I help you? I said, yeah, I've, uh, I've come with the Brentford Football Club. Well, what are you doing here? They, they come on a coach. Where's the rest of them? <laughs> I said, they're on the way down the M4 or on the M20, M1. I said, I live in Watford and I've, I'm, a, I'm a Brentford player. Well, you got any ID? I said, well, I've got my boots. I mean, <laughs> so they said, well, yeah, you better come in then. So it took me and I waited in the tunnel. It's true, this is as I say it. And then the team turned up and my legs are shaking, my hands are shaking, I'm, my bag's shaking. And uh, the team come in and Andy McCulloch and it felt a bit easier. Jackie Graham, who was absolutely brilliant. We, Jackie Graham, what a legend. Uh, so they cut, the players come in, we, we went out onto the pitch and uh, we was looking at the pitch and I'm thinking, oh my God, at my own club, Watford were flying at the time under Graham Taylor. So they were sort of on the up going from the fourth to the third to the second. Jenkins, Blissett all that sort of team uh, really flying, like, you know. So, and they were massive. They was, they was winning, you know, they was winning game after game. So I think, oh, blimey, this is unbelievable. And then he got called into the dressing room, sat in the dressing room. He said, right, this is the lineup." And as he read the team out, he went, Bob Booker, I think it was number six, I can't remember. And I'm thinking, shit, I'm, I'm playing. I'm making my debut at Vicarage Road. There's going to be 15,000 people there. I'm used to playing in front of two men and a dog. What's, what, what, you know, this is quite bizarre, really. So that's how it happened, really. I, you know, I made, made my debut at Watford. I played up front with that little git, Stevie Phillips. <laughs> no, if you, he was a little git when he was... No, I didn't really like Stevie. He was, he was OK, but I think to be that size, you had to be a bit nasty, didn't you? And he, he had that nasty streak, but he could score goals. But I didn't particularly like him as a person. Uh, 
And I played, and uh, we got beat. I think it was 2-1. Uh, the game just flashed me by, but I remember seeing my mates in the crowd. Uh, went out that night up to the local club, got absolutely smashed. Uh, just away with the fairies, really, for your debut. But it was, it was like, it was a boyhood come, dream come true, really, to, to make your debut in your home club in the fashion that I did. Sorry, mate, going on a bit long there. No, that's all good, because just talking about your debut as well, there was some sort of a sort of potential future family affair going on there as well, because apparently the person who marked you, he ended up becoming part of your family, wasn't it, right? Yeah, I don't think... I don't think these guys here will particularly enjoy the name of Ian Bolton. Remember Ian Bolton, centre-half? Exactly, like right. many of you remember him. Because <laughs> he didn't really make an impression on the football club, but he was Graham Taylor's first ever signing from uh, Leicester City as, a, as an apprentice. I think he paid, well, he come from Notts County, 15 grand, and Graham Taylor, God blessed his soul, it, he said it was the best signing he's ever made. Uh, and he went on to take the team into Europe and went through the divisions with Watford and an absolute legend. Uh, and probably was at the end of his playing days when he got the chance to come to Brentford. And again, Frank McClintock was the manager at the time, and he asked me to meet Ian Bolton because we lived in Watford. Again, he was... I was Bob Booker at Brentford. He was Ian Bolton at Watford. And so he turns up in this RS, all singing, dancing, black, bleeding, fastest car you've ever seen, screaming around in the car park. Uh, and he st I started travelling with Ian Bolton to the Brentford training game, uh, ground all the time. And we became friends. And uh, the worst thing I probably ever did was introduce him to my sister. <laughs> well, that's what he says anyway. So uh, my sister used to work in a bank. So we used to go in there and I used to get out my £10 because I only earned 60. He used to get out his £100, and we used to go down to Snooker Club. He used to put £100 in the fruit machine, and I used to buy a lemonade and a bag of crisps of my tenner and have a game of snooker. But that was the difference in me being there and what he'd done at his level. So, yeah, we got really friendly, and he ended up marrying my sister, but he actually marked me on my debut with a fellow called Steve Sims at centre-half uh, and kicked three bags of shit at me, and he still claims to this day, whenever you talk about it, he always goes like that, come on, son, you can come out of the pocket now for ten minutes. But I'll give, give him as good as what he give me. But, yeah, so the person that marked me on my debut ended up being my brother-in-law. So you, you got over that, played a couple of games. Then after that, I think you got shipped off to... I mean, maybe there's a bit of confusion there because you got shipped off to the bees, but it was the fake bees that you got shipped off to, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, well, I had, I had my debut, and then obviously I was sort of just touching on the fringe and substituting things. And really, you know, probably... Uh, some of you guys were, were guilty of it, and, you know, I'd come from... Not, yeah, that's, that's, that's football for you, you know. Who's this Bob Booker? He's come from non-league, he's shit, he can't do this, he can't, he can't trap the ball, he can't control it. But you just got to keep believing yourself and, and keep going and have a belief in your mental ability and your physical, physical ability that you can come through that. And I think being in, being in a furniture factory and being, no disrespect like you guys, what I call the real world, because football is not the real world. Football is a bubble. Let's not get any mistakes about footballers these days and everybody. The whole circus is a bubble. We are the real world. Yeah, let's get, let's get that right. We are the real world. And you paid our wages. Or we used to pay my wages. So that, that, that's how it was. So I had, I had a particularly tough time. Uh, you know, I, I was getting slaughtered by the crowd. And probably rightly so, because I was just... I wasn't really up, up to that thing. But uh, Bill Dodgin and Barry Fry got together and thought it'd be a good idea that I would go away on loan to Barnet and get some experience... And that was like a breath of fresh air for me, really. I, you know, I was not down, but I was not beaten. But I was not really thinking, have I made the right decision? But you keep going. And uh, went to Barnet on loan for a month and scored some goals and absolutely loved it because it was, 
it was tough football. You know, I got kicked from pillar to post against some big centre-halves. A tough league, which really hardened me up and gave me a lot of experience in a month. Uh, and then again, it's always on a Wednesday with me. I got the phone call from Bill Dodgin uh, to come back. We've got a few injury problems. Could you come back? You're in the squad for Saturday against Hull City. <laughs> and then, as I say, the rest was history, really. So, you know, I come back and we, as you probably remember, we won 7-2 and I scored a hat-trick in 27 minutes. And that will stand, stand with me for the rest of my life, really. And that probably, not kick-start my career, but it sort of got the thing rolling a little bit and... Probably not always in a good way, because I didn't really sort of go, oh, yeah, I've scored that trick, I'm going to be the best player ever. It was still a struggle after that, and I still struggled to get in the team and was getting a, a, you know, some bad stick from the crowd, and you just learn to deal with that and, and, and keep going. Really, you're just working towards trying to get your new contract. And it's interesting, you talk about that whole game. I actually remember that whole game, because I remember uh, I wasn't actually a Brentford fan at the time, but I used to live in... Oh, oh, oh. Not, a, not a full on... But anyway, I was young at the time, but I remember getting the, the local newspaper, whatever it was, it was the evening, whatever it may be, and I remember seeing the headline there, and it's like, Brentford win 7, was it 7-2? Seven 7-2 two? Seven two at the time, with Bob Booker, this new player, Bob Booker, has scored a hat-trick. And at that time, I had a couple of locals around there who was always trying to get me down to come down to Brentford. And I remember seeing that headline. That headline actually brought me down to Brentford. The Bob Booker. Yeah, it was your fault, yeah. Some, <laughs> some of us were actually there. Hands up who was actually there at the 7-2. Yeah, well, you know, you know. So, but anyway, so, listen, but that's but that season, I mean, obviously that was good for you, but like I said to you, it was a bit of an up-and-down season, Bill Dodgen, and, you know, we did well to start off with, then there were seven straight losses after a few, um, straight away after that whole game, and we went from sort of almost like a promotion-based team to a relegation-based team in that season, and I, I also remember the last game of that season, which is obviously my first season at Brentford, um, we, I think we played Millwall, which is what we did today, the last game of the season. Yeah, it was a great escape. But I remember, actually, because uh, it, was, it was in the days where the fans could walk around from one end of the pitch to the other. And I remember we walked to, we were in the Royal Oak in the first half, and in the second half, I think Brentford were cooking the other way. So I walked around the Millwall end, but then afterwards we got trapped in there. So we couldn't actually get out. So we, yeah, we, we, got, we got stuck in the Millwall end, watching Brentford, actually, fingers crossed, getting relegated. But that game, that season, saw the end of Bill Dodgen, didn't it? I mean, was it, how, did that, how was that for you? Well, that was tough, really, because I didn't really know the ins and outs of a football club. I just turned up for training and, and trained and played and hopefully got picked. And you know, it was all new to me, the professional game. I was, I was in a non-league club, so it, it's a massive step up. Uh, and you know, when you find out your manager's going, you think, really, he's the next person to me, apart from my dad. He was, he was my mentor, you know. He signed me as a prof professional footballer. So he was, he, was my, he was my guiding light, really. And so that was a massive shock to me. And straight away you're thinking, I don't think it was a too much of a shock to other players because they'd been pros since they left school. And that's a completely different thing, you know. Because I worked in a factory, I, I sort of knew what it was like to come into football where a lot of younger players, even today, they're straight from school at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, straight into pro clubs. So they don't know any different. So for the manager to go was a massive, massive blow for me. Uh, and straight away you start the, the rumblings on who's possibly coming in. I mean, I didn't know football that well really professional status so uh the next manager i think was fred callahan wasn't it so yeah so big fred now all i knew about fred that he drove taxis so i thought we'll all we'll be all right to get a lift home from somewhere <laughs> at some stage so uh 
Yeah, but, uh, you know, Fred came in with uh, Ron Harris. Remember Ron Harris? Fred came in with Ronnie Harris. Oh, I absolutely... When I wasn't a Leeds fan, having said that, I did go to Leeds to watch a lot of Leeds football because my stepbrother was at Leeds University. But that's another story. Leeds, you know, the great teams, Clark, Lima and all that. I've got a nice little story about Alan Clark. Uh, not one of them stories. Uh, yeah, so what was it? So Fred Callan came in with Ronnie Harris and uh, that, was, that was the next sort of regime, really. So didn't really know Fred, only from from non-league at Woken and things like that, but obviously knew about Chopper Harris, or I absolutely idolised. So there was someone there straight away that I wanted to impress uh, with, my, with my attitude and my professionalism, and hopefully I did. But Ron was, a, Ron was a strange character. He was a very quiet man, but the hardest player you think you could probably ever play against, I should imagine. You know, even on a, on a cold, freezing day, he, would, he used to stand in the bath and warm his feet up, and then he used to put his boots on, and he used to have the longest aluminium studs you've ever seen, all the way through his boots, even if it was like concrete out there. He was going to take no prisoners. And when, sometimes when we used to come back from the training ground, him and Colin Lee, they used to take the apprentices, don't take this the wrong way, they used to take the apprentices around the back of the stand. <laughs> and it was before the flats were built, and it was like a corrugated car park. I don't know if any of you remember that, that, that area around the back of that big, the big home end, which was, which was a massive end, wasn't it? You know, that was where all the fights used to go and, you know, that was a great end and it was quite sad to see that go when I was at the club, to be honest, for the flats, but it was obviously business. But Ron used to take the apprentices out there and he used to set up a five-a-side and he used to batter them. He used to crunch them in, and I used to join in sometimes, and he used to, he used to crunch them into the corrugated iron and just leave them in a heap on the floor. And if they didn't get up, he just carried on. He had no remorse for anybody or anything. He was a, he was a great character, but never spoke a lot, but a great leader and so that was the next regime and uh, it, I mean obviously like I said Fred Callahan. you've got the Chopper Harris who uh, the Allard would probably be very happy with him because uh, Chopper Harris came from Chelsea as well well that's a if you, if you listen to the podcast a lot you would understand what that's all about um, but that team players like Dennis Salmon Pat Cruz say Mark Hill Dave Crown Tony Funnel got Shrub uh, Ron Harris Dean Smith not, not this Dean Smith obviously um, Jim McNichol Willie Graham Terry Rowe but also also signed Gary Roberts that year um, Gary Johnson, that's when Martin Lang came in. There was a bit of a revolution, but there was also one other player who came in that season. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what you thought when he came in. Terry Herlock joining in from Leighton, Stone and Ilford. Uh, what were your thoughts when you first saw him? My thoughts were, <laughs> where's my money? <laughs> where's my money and where's my possessions? Because uh, he was... <laughs> We heard, we heard the rumblings that someone was coming and we believed that he'd, we'd signed him from prison, apparently. You know, and I think that was true. I think, I think he'd done a little stink because he, like he did like a bit of a... You know, he had a fierce group of friends, you know, but you couldn't have met a nicer fella than Terry Erlock. He would give you his last penny if he had it. And I struck up a particularly good friendship with Terry, which I think was a good idea. Because <laughs> he was a hard taskmaster, a very underrated player, Went on to play the Glasgow Rangers, England B, Southampton. But what a complete, what a, what a legend as well. But uh, you say that first meeting, we was playing away at Walsall and he met us uh, in the dressing room and we walked in the dressing room and he was sitting in the corner and he had this mop of curls hair with these big gypsy earrings. He had a pair of jeans on, flip-flops, no socks, because you can't wear socks with flip-flops. Tattered old jeans and a granddad shirt, sitting there unshaven, boots next to him. And that was Terry Erlock waiting there to make his, his debut for Brentford. And he absolutely smashed it. He was fantastic. And we won that game 3-2. I did score that one, Billy, as well, by the way. You didn't have that. You did, 
can you just edit that, oh, Bob yeah, Booker? Yeah, yeah. Just... <laughs> and we won 3-2. I think that one was on the, on the match of the day that night. So Terry Erlock, that was my first meeting of, of Terry Erlock. But uh, you mentioned a few other names there, like uh, Dean Smith. You know, unfortunately, Dean Smith is no longer with us. I don't know if people knew that, uh, which is quite sad, really, because he come down from Leicester, and I remember, I remember Dean Smith because he was a very laid-back character. But this boy had so much ability, but you just wanted, you just wanted him to say, come on, give us a little bit more. He, he wasn't the greatest worker, but technically, around the box and scoring goals, he was absolutely fantastic. Until I got together with Greville and we started the book, I didn't realise, sadly, he'd passed away. So that's quite, that's quite sad, really, you know, and... We're sitting here now talking about the old days and we've lost someone that played for this football club. So, yeah, Terry Erlock was a complete legend. Uh, absolutely loved him. We had some right laughs with him. In fact, when we had a, an end-of-season do at the club and my mum and dad came and we were all sitting there drinking and standing there drinking and my mum's completely away with the fairies, I've got to be honest. And we're standing there talking and she's talking to Terry Herlock's dad. And she said to him, uh, what do you do then, Mr Herlock? He said, I'm a thief. <laughs> she went... Right, okay, where'd you do that then? He said, well, well, you know, wherever I can, you know, but com completely embarrassed me, so, uh, and that's exactly what he said, and, he, and his dad was a thief, but he was a nice thief. You know, there's bad thieves and nice thieves, isn't there? But I remember also one time, Terry Locke said, because he lived over at Leightonstone, he said, come over, he said, uh, my dad's bought me a new dog, he's bought me a Doberman. I went, okay, right, that's okay. So I come over to his flat, or his house, I think it was a, well, I think it was a flat, and we came into the flat, and that might have been a house because they had an open fire, that's right. And I went in there for the afternoon, and I could see all these piles of white 6x6 wood stacked up at the side of the fireplace. And by the way, the dog wasn't a Doberman, it had the biggest towel ever. So he got sucked in big time there, saying his dad had bought the Doberman. So I thought, oh, that's so strange, you know, all that white painted wood at the, at the side, you know. Why is that? He said, come on, we're going to take, I think his name was Dingo, the dog. We're going to take Dingo over to the local park. So we go over to the local park, and then it become apparent I'm looking through this park and there's about five football pitches with that much goalpost sticking out the ground. His old man had chopped all the goalposts down for firewood <laughs> on about five pitches, and that is true as I sit here today. So when I'm thinking, yeah, white wood, goalpost, no... What's that then, Tell? Well, I don't know nothing about that. And it, it was Terry Earl's dad, so great family. Uh, you know, Terry Erlock, I mean, loved to drink, loved to social. As you know, probably he used to live right opposite the ground, uh, just down the road from the great Stanley Bowles, God bless him. Uh, and we had a really, we used to be rooming partners before Terry Evans come, me and Terry Erlock. And you had to keep up with him, but you knew that you had him on your side. You know, even as a person, if anything was going to kick off, then you had Terry Erlock with you. And if he's on a pitch, if you had a, if he's on a pitch, you'd want him on your side rather than against you. So listen, I mean, we've got, Obviously, Kerlock came into that team, and then the following year, you know, he signed Stan Bowles, Herlock was in there, Kamara signed, who a lot of Bees players will still turn around and say that was the best midfield. Can I just say, before you ask another question, I was telling some guys out there, Chris Kamara, Stan Bowles, Terry Herlock, and Bob Booker. <laughs> How lucky was I to play in that midfield? I mean, that, that says it all, really. I mean, you know, we were very blessed at that stage to have that, that quality of player. Yeah, 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 100%. I mean, that was, and, and, and Brentford fans, and I know you might sort of say, you know, a lot of the sort of slightly younger, the younger fans, like, you know, might, might not know that area and say, oh, you're talking about history, but 
even though we've got the midfield that we've got now, we still hark back to that midfield because it, it was a fantastic midfield, you know, and you know, they could have gone on to bigger and better things. The following season as well, Francis Joseph came in. We had Tony Mahoney as well, who unfortunately broke his leg. Um, they had Tony Spencer, who had that wedge. Remember, they had the old wedge haircut, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, Spencer. And we had Alan Whitehead, who had probably the worst song ever, which is made up by me, um, and uh, another that as well. So, yes, that's right. So, but, but that time, we were sort of kind of solidifying. We were about eighth or ninth in the league, so we were kind of getting up there, moving up to, uh, to, to, towards the position. But there's one player that I want to talk to about, because we don't really mention him, but he was in the team of the 82-83 season. I remember him very well. He was a complete and utter lunatic. Peter Barota, the goalkeeper. Do you remember? Oh, I remember him from his Chelsea days. Uh, I don't really remember. I remember him at Brentford, but I didn't think he was that much of a nutter, was he? He must know a little bit more than me. I mean, I know he was a bit scatty as a goalkeeper, but as a person, I was a goalkeeper, complete shambles, nightmare. <laughs> you know, any ball that you come across, he used to shout out, yours, mine, away. <laughs> what, what one are we doing first then? Is it yours or is it mine or are we getting rid of it? You know, well, yours, mine, away, whatever language he did it in. Yeah, so he was a nutter, but, you know, he'd run for a brick wall, wouldn't he? But uh, very quiet man off the park, but on, on the pitch. Another one that's not with us anymore. Is he not? Oh, sorry I said that then, Peter. But you made a good story. God bless him. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that as well because, again, we're playing Millwall again. And I remember when we played Millwall away, I think it was a night match and he was in goal. And uh, I, I was just wondering, uh, all I remember is that he kept on coming out. Coming out, possibly, yeah. He kept coming out to the halfway line and sort of doing things. And I think, I think they scored quite a few goals. I, I, I was trying to see if you could recall that game, but obviously, obviously not. I remember yeah, but still, but anyway, but also we were going in, we had the big effort, Swansea um, League Cup win as well, which you were part of, which was a big, big, big era. And then we moved on to Nottingham Forest, which is a big game, wasn't it? Well, you're on about the Swansea one leading up to the Freight Rover final. I mean, that was a big game. And I don't know if anybody went to the game, but I scored a goal like David Beckham. Was anyone at that game? No, you wouldn't have traveled to Swansea. You remember it? Yeah. Oh, do you remember it? I was just inside the halfway line. You must remember it. Come on. You're going to remember a goal like that. Just inside. Yeah. Well, it, it, not dissimilar to David Beckham from the halfway line. I think I scored two that night, and then we come back at Griffin Park and smashed them uh, and got to Wembley. That's right, that's right. And um, you were also voted Player of the Year in 82-83. You know, you beat Herlock, you beat Bowles, and you beat Joseph, um, which I thought was an interesting story. But I thought what was a slightly more interesting story is, um, and I'll just read it, the headline was Bob Booker. I mean, is, is a big hit with the birds. <laughs> right? Big hit with the birds. More important, right? He goes, Kind Bob and the budgie looked after a wounded bird, previously cared for an injured seagull. And the quote from you is, I felt sorry for the little bird. I nursed the seagull back to health and, and, and fed it. But I might keep the budgie if I could help it pull through. I've taken it home, <laughs> bought it a cage and lots of bird seed. It's proving quite expensive for a pet, but I don't mind. <laughs> what the hell is that all about? Of course it was expensive. I was only on 60 quid a week. <laughs> petrol, petrol, pay me mum and birdseed. <laughs> now, I, I mean, outside of football, as you know, it might sound a bit of, I might sound a bit of a weirdo, but I am a, uh, what do they call it, ornithologist? I, I do go bird spotting. Twitter, that, Twitter. Twitter. I'm a Twitter. I'm a Twitter. That is my, uh, that is my refuge when uh, I like to relax and go out and walk in the dog and do a bit of bird watching. So the seagull thing, really, we was on the training ground and, uh, you know, a load of seagulls are just walking around, pattering their feet, trying to get the worms and all that. Me, silly bollocks, decides to try and chase and catch one. He jumped through the air, they all fly off, but the one that didn't fly off, I caught, because it was injured. So I took this seagull home to my mum and dad, and 
I've got to try and get this seagull better because I'm a bit of an animal, lo am animal lover. So I used to put it in the bath and it used to go up and down the bath while I was in the bath. And then, then I was feeding it. What, what are you laughing at? What, what goal was it? A herring goal, black-headed goal, common goal? What was it? It was a black-headed goal. Black-headed goal. Well done, son. Don't get too busy with it. All right, it's just a seagull. We got, we're on the top, we're on a watch here, talking about bloody... It was a black-headed goal going up and down the bath, feeding it worms. And then I made a little pen outside the back garden so it couldn't sort of run away. And then it sort of started to flap its wings a little bit, so I thought it was getting stronger and a little bit more. And then one day, the bleeding thing just flew off and it just went. And I thought, you bastard, you didn't even thank me. <laughs> and, it, and he just went. And, uh, but funny enough, see you later, fella. Thank you. Uh, yeah, funny enough, a little, a little couple of weeks later, a seagull kept landing on our chimney. So I reckon it was him, and I called him Gulliver. As regards, as regards the budget, I found the budget at Brentford in the car park, put it in a box, went and played the game. Me and my dad stopped at a pet shop, brought a cage and took it home and had him for about five years. I can't remember what his name was. Anyway, that's the bird story. <laughs> but going back to the player of the year, uh, as you say, you know, the, sort of beating the lights of, of Herlock and, and Bowles and Joseph, that was, that was quite an honour, really. And we ju we'd just come back from a, a trip in Magaluf, or should I say Shagaloof, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we come back from Magaluf and got player of the year at the winning post. And that was a special moment for me because I think I started playing in different positions and getting the title of a utility player which stood me in good stead for my days when I become a coach because all of a sudden if I asked to fill in for the right back, I had to do the right back's job. Well, if I was playing in front of Bowlesy, that was easy because I'd get it off the goalkeeper, I'd give it to Bowlesy and light a fag up because <laughs> you either got it back from him, but more or less you know he's going to keep hold of it and do a bit of magic or, or take somebody on. So that was a pleasure to play behind Bowlesy. Uh, then I sort of done a stint in midfield or left wing or right wing or up front or centre half. So you get that title of a utility player, which I think, is good when you end up as a coach because you see the game, how that player sees it in that position. So, you know, that season, having played in every shirt except the goalkeepers, you know, that was quite an honour to get, to get player of the season. And then moving on to 85 is a big year and you mentioned it a little bit earlier because that was the year that we got to the Freight Rover final and we, we got to Wembley for the first time. All us fans were very excited. I think oh, we brought 20, 20, 20 or 1,000 fans we brought to that game. So excited because it's the first time Brentford had done anything. So we were there. And the team didn't quite perform on the day, but now, but listening to the fact that you did have a sort of a pre 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 cup final um, um, warm down in Corfu, didn't you? And maybe that might explain why we didn't really perform that well. well I think it was a warm up. It was about thirty five degrees. Uh, yeah, I mean, I must apologise first and foremost to all you fans that made that trip that day. You know, you can look at it and talk about it now, but uh, it was a it was a shambles. I've got to be honest, it was a complete shambles and. Uh, Great idea, you know, this team bonding crap and all that, but, you know, in them days, you sent a group of footballers away, they're going to get on the piss. Now, Matt, you know, you shouldn't, but it's just that human nature at that time, you know, we shouldn't have done it. I say it wasn't that heavy all the time, but it wasn't the preparation we should have had because Wigan stayed at home uh, and got all our work done. We went away and got a nice tan, short hair, long at the back, come back looking the bollocks and, and failed miserably, but... Uh, you know, we was, out, we was out with a manager, Frank McClintock, who liked to drink, and John Dock. You know, I can remember some nights we was in a bar and they was drinking with us, and as they left, they were so drunk, they were crawling up the steps, and we was throwing tin cans at them and hit them on the back of the head. And Frank, yes, yeah, see you at training in the fucking morning, see you at morning, see you in the morning. Yeah, we'll be there, Gaffer, we'll be there. Then you turn up for training, head like a foot, 
stinking of booze, Francis Joseph with a sombrero on and a pair of crocodile shoes. He uh, wasn't actually in the squad, but it was still funny to see. Jamie Murray with a sombrero on, jogging around doing a warm-up. Uh, all shen shenanigans going on, you know, rooms getting wrecked, and, you know, that's the sort of things you did in the, in the 80s. Uh, not saying it was the right thing, but it was, the preparation wasn't, wasn't the best, and then we, we got back late. I mean, probably the worst thing that happened, and it is in the book, to be fair, was, you know, we, we'd had it, we'd had the game before we went away, Gary Phillips had done a particularly good save from a free kick. So in his wisdom, we're, we're outside a bar, having a few beers, and it's pretty packed there with all British tourists and everything, know that we're the Brentford team, and yeah, we're playing the final at Wembley on Saturday, yeah, we're the dog's bollocks, aren't we? No, we're not. <laughs> and uh, so he decided in his wisdom to set the wall up, so we all get in the wall, me, Cammy, Terry Erlock, all the people, you know, Stevie Wignall and all that. He sets the wall up. He's behind the wall, acting as if he's in goal. And then Gary Roberts had to throw a pineapple in the trajectory of where the ball went for this free kick. And Gary Phillips launched himself across the bar, landed on the shingle, cut all his hand open, and got up and said, that's how I saved that free kick last week, lads. Big gash in his hand, but he was so pleased that he just pushed the pineapple wide. So he's reenacting this free kick away in Corfu before we meant to be playing a game at Wembley. So, not ideal. It went, it went down at the time as a good laugh, but we come back and we didn't perform and we, we let ourselves down there and we let the fans down and we let the club down, to be fair. Uh, and that's just one of them things that happened that you can't, you can't turn back now. We could have made a better account of ourselves. It's hindsight. If we didn't go away, would we have won? All the fans had turned out. It was a massive turnout at Wembley. Wigan had stayed at home and done, that, done their work. And they had a particularly good team at the time, Warren Aspinall and uh, Lowe and people that went on to play for Everton and that. And uh, I don't think we was really at the races, really, at that, at that day. So a good spectacle, but not the best preparation, I have to say. And as it went on after that, you, did, you damaged your AC against the South End, I think it was, and then you were out for a while. And eventually you sort of had you know, troubles getting into the side and, and, and then you ended up going to, to Sheffield United. Um, moving to Sheffield United. Now, what I will say is that because there's one thing we haven't sort of talked about as well, because obviously we talked about your book, and I've look, I looked at it, I thought, the name of this book is Who Are? The Bob Booker Story. And uh, where did the Who Are come from? Who Are? Well, a lot of people think that Leeds United started it, and I thought you might have known that, Billy, being Who Are Cantona. But that, that's a load of shit. I'm Who Are, right? <laughs> and don't let anybody tell you any different. Uh, it just started. It just started as the sand dance did. Really, it just started in the cop, you know, uh, at Sheffield United. Uh, and I had, a, I, you know, I got a good rapport with the fans, and I was, I was passionate what I was trying to do. And I think they could see that I was a working class guy, and I wanted, to, I wanted to work hard. But it wasn't particularly good at the start at Sheffield United. Very similar to my, my Brentford days, I got absolutely battered, which is not too dissimilar to the Brentford. But when five or six thousand people are screaming your name and you're crap. It's slightly different when it's 25,000. So that was quite daunting, I have to say. That's Harley Dean finding out right now. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all, that's all part of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the UR, the, the UR came from the Sheffield United supporters and uh, Leeds United tried to claim it. Uh, but, yeah, that's just a, a title and, uh, that me and Greville come up with on the book. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the story of UR, really, and uh, the legend that lives on. I just have to say, because I'm actually not very happy with it, the UR element at all, because, I mean, we are Brentford fans, we were here earlier, and actually you know, we had the original Booker song, but that UR was turned into the Booker song, but we don't think it's the original. And what, what I would like to do is I would like to recreate the original song, if you don't mind. If you just hold the mic over there, 
I mean, just tell me if we're right here. Now, can, can you do ooh-ah, Bob Bukar? I said ooh-ah, Bob Bukar. Yeah. So there was a graduation. It sort of went from few. Do you think the funeral dance was like when you first started and you were like getting really hammered by the band? Like, oh no, who's this Bob Booker? And it was like the funeral dance came in. And when your playing started to improve, it moved to a slightly more kind of funky sand dance. Yeah, I, I think, you know, songs, certain players get certain songs and you've probably got some for the, the present players today. But when, it, when a crowd is singing your name, uh, it gives you a bit of a buzz, I have to say. Whether you're having a bad time or a good time or. In my time, I think it was a bit of a piss take out of me because I was probably slow and inexperienced and not really doing the right thing. So it was all a bit drab, and, but it turned into a song, hopefully, that people sung because they appreciated what I was trying to do for the football club. So the same as the, the Sheffield United fans, you know, they made up this song. They also had another song. Uh, and I'll t Should I tell the story quickly? Yeah, yeah we're, playing, we're playing Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday at Bramall Lane and a pre-season friendly, uh, 35,000 people. And uh, I'm, I'm playing against a particular player that I absolutely hated in Sheffield called uh, Colton Palmer. He's a big tall lad that played for Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, and it, his nickname was Pinhead because he was really tall. He played for England. How? I never not know. He was absolutely useless. And we hated each other. Uh, and, and when we played in the local derbies, we used to kick three ba bags of shit out of each other. And we had a pre-season friendly. Why Sheffield organised that, I do not know, because it was a mass battle outside and inside the ground. And uh, we started the game and, you know, me and Colton are, were kicking each other and we're, we're throwing abuse at each other and he's running and kicking me. And in them days, when I got kicked, I only went down if you got hurt, not like the tarts today that roll over like Call of Duty. I'd only stayed down if you was really hurt. So he kept kicking me and kept kicking me and I just kept saying, come on, Pinhead, if that's all you've got, come on, give it to me. Well, in them days, there wasn't a lot of cameras, so... I think I passed the ball off and I made a forward run and I could hear this grunting and groaning coming behind me and it was obviously Colton Palmer. And he, he, he gouged me right down the back of my calf with, with his studs and I went down. I wasn't really hurt, but I felt it. And of course, 35,000 people, it's all kicking off. All the players are rumbling and having rucks outside. You know, the ref's trying to get order. Linesmen can't really see much because there's no cameras. They're not flagging or anything. Derek French, the uh, physio, comes on, comes over me. He says, what's up, son? What's up, son? I just look up, I said, nothing, just look busy and look, get your sponge out, there's nothing wrong with me. And winked at him, he said, oh, okay, I said, what's happening to Colton? He said, the ref's talking to him now. I said, what's happening now? He said, he's got the red card. I thought, that's my time to get up now. <laughs> and Colton Palmer, call it what you like, professional, Colton Palmer got sent off and missed the first three games of the season. And I was quite happy about that. <laughs> but as I got up, the crowd that day, Sheffield United crowd, just thought, we have got, we've got, a, we've got a player here. He's, he's one of us. And they started singing. We've got Bobby Booker. He's a dirty fucker. He's six foot tall and costs fuck all. <laughs> and that was another song that the Sheffield United fans used to sing about me because uh, they was quite happy that I uh, got rid of Colton Palmer in a nice way.
So we're going to gloss through the Sheffield United uh, thing because it's very important to you, but it's Sheffield United, another white, red and white striped team. But the one thing I would say is there's one t game that you did play, uh, I think it was the last game of the season, which you had to, I think you scored a goal to keep Sheffield United in the first division. Do you remember who that was against? It was against our rivals, QPR. <laughs> down at uh, Loftus Road. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I'd, I've had a lot of special moments in my career, you know, signing, signing as a pro, you know, being at a club for over 10 years and get a testimonial. There won't be many players in the modern game now that get a testimonial because it's all about that and moving on and kissing the badge and all that crap. That's a load of rubbish. There ain't, you know, it's a different era now, isn't it? As I said before, it's all changed. And I, li I, I like to think that I was in a, in a nice era of the 70s, 80s and 90s where players were players. Uh, but that game down at Loftus Road was particularly interesting because we hadn't won a game uh, up until Christmas in, in the old first division, we hadn't won a game. But we had a manager in Dave Bassett who believed in us and we was just a team of thugs really. You know, the likes of myself, Vinnie Jones, Brian Dean, Tony Garner. We didn't really have any big time Charlies. He put a group of players together that really believed in each other, North and South players, which was fantastic. And uh, we hadn't won a game up until Christmas and we beat Nottingham Forest at home 3-2 and there was a pitch invasion because we'd won a game. And this was at Christmas, we didn't have a point. And that was our first three points of the season. And we went on a bit of a run and it come down to three games to go, whether we'd get three games to go, whether we'd get relegated, and we played away at QPR. Uh, we took a massive falling down there. The away end was full of Sheffield United fans, top and bottom. And above the scoreboard there, I had my, I, I'd got the seats for my dad, my best mates, and my sister, and Ian Bolton, they was all sitting right above the scoreboard there. And uh, we, went, we went one nil up, and then they equalised, and there was about 10 minutes to go, and uh, we was kicking towards the end, and Vinnie Jones came up to take a long throw in, and everybody thought he was going to take a long throw because that's what Sheffield United did. So everybody backed off. He took a short throw to John Pemberton, who whipped it in. I come ghosting at the back like Martin Peters, I have to say, <laughs> and buried it in the top corner with my head in front of, in between, uh, I think it was Peacock and someone else, Danny Maddox. And I just saw it going, in, going into the corner of the net, and obviously, like, the whole place erupted, and I run around behind a goal, and saluted me dad as he looked down. Yeah, saluted my dad. And uh, that was a great moment for me, uh, uh, putting that in the back of the head. And the funny thing about it is I've got a fantastic photo home that someone took from the other side, pointing at all the fans. And as the ball had left my head, everybody's sitting completely still. But my best mate was out of his feet and he had his arms up and I think he knew that he was going in the top corner. And that goal kept us in the first division. And, and Andy Dakin, the chief executive, come up to me and cuddled me and said, well done, son. Well done, who are you? saved us a million pound. I said, yeah, just make sure it's in my fucking wage packet. All right. <laughs> so just briefly, we're just going to talk about you came back to Brentford. Just quickly, you came back to Brentford. Then we're going to just open up questions to the floor. You came back to Brentford in 91, signed by Noddy. Holder, or Phil Holder, some people call him. Um, you were nearly 34 at the time as well there, and you were part of the championship squad that got promoted to, well, the division that we're in now. Um, never quite reached the heights of where you were before with Sheffield United at Brentford, but you were still part of that squad. Now, how was that, and how, how different was that? Uh, well, it was a difficult... It, you know, they say you should never come back, and uh, on my particular instance, I didn't, you know, it was difficult. My heart said, yes, I could come back to Brentford. I was 34 years old. Uh, I still had a year left on my, on, my, uh, on my Sheffield United contract. But Dave Bassett, it was on the morning of a game against Sheffield Wednesday, in fact, at, at, at home, Bramwell Lane, a local derby. 
Uh, and he said, listen, I've got something to say. He pulled me in the office and said, Phil Holder's coming for you. He wants you to come back to Brentford. I was 34. He said, well, you know, and Dave Bassett was brilliant. You know, I'd never bought a house in Sheffield. I still kept my base in Watford. I was in Diggs. He said, listen, you know, you need to get back down there. You're 34. We're probably not going to offer you another contract after this. You're 34. Phil's offering you, like, the rest of this season, another two years. That takes you to 36. You know, financially, it's going to be a great move for you. You're going to go back to Brentford on the, on the same money, uh, which was good money. Uh, I think you should go. And it was hard because my, my heart wanted to come back, but my head was saying I didn't want to leave Sheffield. So I was really caught in between these two stalls what to do. Two clubs that had, you know, put food on my table, a massive part of my life. You know, what do I do? And uh, so I spoke to Phil directly on the phone afterwards, and he said, listen, we want you to come back down with your experience and everything, and uh, you've now got to that first division level. We, we want you to come down and be good around the young players in the Brentford team. Uh, we're looking to go for promotion, and we want you to be part of that. So I, I, I took the bait and decided to come down. So that was on the Saturday morning before the Sheffield Wednesday game. And then Dave Bassett turned around and said, you're going to go out on the pitch and say cheerio to, to the home fans. I said, no, I can't do that, Harry. He said, no, you're going out there. You've, you know, you're, you're, you're a cult hero at this club. If you don't go out there, they never, they never think the last of it. You're, not, you know, you're going today, you're leaving. So he sent me out to the pitch in front of the fans and I got a stand innovation in front of the, the Sheffield United fans. And that was a massive moment. And uh, two days later, I was back down at Griffin Park. Uh, but it, it all went quite sour. You know, my knee suddenly packed up after the first game away at Bournemouth. And I didn't play the part that I expected to play. I got a championship medal, but I didn't deserve it because uh, I hadn't played a part. So it, it was a tough time. Uh, it was great that the club had finally got promotion. I'd never had promotion with Brentford Football Club, which I wanted to get as a player. Uh, I got it, but it, it wasn't how I wanted it to be. So they say never come back, and it was a, it was a tough, tough time and not one that I really sort of relish thinking about too much, but it happened and you have to get on with it. And uh, we're going to open up some questions to the floor now because we've been here for a while. So um, Claire over there has got the microphone. So if anyone would like to ask some questions, just put your hand up and Claire will come over. Uh, wait till you get the microphone you, before you answer the question because we are recording this for our Besotted Pride of West London podcast, which will go out hopefully at some time next week. All right, Bob. Uh, were you really born within a short goal kick of Watford's ground? Walking or cycling or car. Because that, that was always in the, pr the programmes. Yeah, I, I would, it was only like a 10-minute drive from Vicarage Road. Could you have kicked a ball from the ground at the hospital? Uh, I couldn't, but Terry Evans could have. <laughs> Terry Evans was the only person, only player I know that from a goal kick from the opposition, headed it over the KLM stand. That's how powerful he was. No, so, yeah, I was, I was, I was, in, I was born in a place called Garston, which is just outside of Watford. But uh, as as uh, as the words go, it wasn't it wasn't a kicking distance. It was, but it was a short distance. Yeah. So, thanks for that. Anyway. Bob, best manager you ever worked with? Played for or worked with? Ah, no, that, well, that, that, well no, both. I've got go a on, list. I've, yeah, go on. Both. Yeah, let's go for both. I've got a list of about twenty managers here that I've worked or played with. So, did you say work with? Uh, oh, blimey! I've worked with a few. I mean, I worked under seven managers at Brighton as a as an assistant manager and a coach. They all had different traits. The only way I can explain about being assistant manager, and I don't know if any of you are assistant managers to a manager, but again, it's in football. It's like being married to a man. You, you've got to have total trust in your manager, and he's got to have total trust in you, and you've got to be there for him to pick him up or be the link between him and the players. So they all had their traits. You know, Some of them I used to socialise with. Mickey Adams was probably the first manager that gave me my big break 
from Brentford as youth team coach down to Brighton as assistant manager. Uh, and you know, Mickey, Mickey Adams really loved this football club. He was only here for a season and we went down, if you remember, and he, we had a right go at it, but he, he really loved this football club. He loved the family connection. He loved the tightness of the club, the football ground, and he was gutted when he had to go. Uh, and the day he left, I was youth team coach and I was walking up and he was leaving down the steps with his fridge underneath his arm out of his office. And I said, where are you going, Gaffer? He said, I've, I've been sacked. So, uh, but Mickey Adams, I owe a hell of a lot in football. Uh, I mean, I worked under Stevie Coppel, who was a very quiet man, but he used to let me do most of the coaching. Peter Taylor, I worked under Peter Taylor, who was the England manager at the time. Uh, he was a strange one. He was like, loved all his badges and his socks rolled up and his whistle. So I didn't really socialise much with Peter, but he did most of the coaching, so I was sort of put to the side. They all, they've all got different characters, you know, so... Uh, to say, to say the best, I worked under Mark McGee. I'd say probably, probably Mickey Adams probably was not just because of his football, uh, uh, you know, his coaching ability and that, but just as becoming a good friend and a, and a tight friend with him. But, you know, I've worked under so many, it's hard to really call one, really. But just you take a bit from each manager, really, and put it into your own, into your own sort of persona when you become a coach. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, probably say, I'll probably say Mickey Adams. But as a player, uh, Dave Bassett was... Was, was up there amongst the best of them. He wasn't a great coach, but you'd run through a brick wall for him. You know, he, his man management was unbelievable. You know, he, he, he could slaughter you one minute. I mean, we got beat 5-2 at West Ham once. I got absolutely roasted by Stuart Slater. I was on my arse about 10 times in the first half. We got beat five, and he absolutely battered me afterwards. You know, what are you doing? You're Eustace. You ain't one header. You ain't one to tackle. Stay on your feet. If you don't liven up, you're coming off. You know, that, and that's how he used to talk to you. Or if we got beat at home, when I was living in Sheffield and I hadn't been home for about six weeks, he would you know, absolutely slaughter you. And then I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm meant to be going home. I ain't been home for two months. You know, I'd arranged to go out. And then we'd go in the showers. He said, you ain't work today. You're in in the morning, 8 o'clock, running around the track. You didn't run for the fans today. See you in the morning. I'm thinking, shit, I'm going home. So I'd be in the shower, but Dave Bassett would come up behind you in the shower and he'd say, get yourself home, son. You ain't been home for two months. And in that moment of that heat of that moment, he'd remember that I hadn't been home. I said, it's all right, Gaffer, if the, if, the, if the players are in, running around the track, I'll be in. He said, well, that's up to you, I'll give you the option. But that's, that's man management. That's not coaching. You know, Alex Ferguson don't do any coaching, he man manages. So, you know, they've all got their different ways, you know. So, but Dave Bassett was, was, fan, was fantastic. Hi. Now, uh, I've actually read the book, uh, which I can highly recommend to everybody, but one of the most uh, striking passages for me in the book was uh, at the end of your second spell at Brentford, uh, the manner of you leaving the club and I'd just like to say uh, David Webb your thoughts please uh, oh the old bulldog yeah my friend David Webb well that was that was a nightmare for me really I mean I'm quite an easy going guy and I've got a lot of respect for people and, and things like that but uh, you know he absolutely bullied me out of that football club I have to say uh, whether it was business whether it was football you know I was I, would, I was injured uh, I was probably the highest paid player on the books when he, when he took over, having come from Sheffield United. I think he saw that in front of him and thought, I'm no good to him as a commodity. Uh, I'd never met the guy before. In fact, I was quite in awe of him because he was a Chelsea player and I used to watch Chelsea quite a bit with my mates, as Ron Harris. So David Webb was a bit of a legend to me. So when I was at home and I, I, I got the phone call to come and see David Webb, Ian Bolton had informed me that you're probably going to be in for a bit of a rocky ride, which I wasn't really expecting. Uh, got into the office, 
you know, Webby was like laid back in his chair, big old stomach out there. Didn't really, you know, I walked in and said hello. He didn't hardly said hello to me. Didn't shake my hand. That's not the way that I thought business was done, really. Uh, and then he just ridiculed me and said, you're not fit. Uh, we've got to sort something out. We're going to offer you some money. You're going to leave. I said, well, hang on a minute. I'm, you know, I've still got two years of my contract left or a year and a half of my contract left. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, if you end up staying here, I'm going to make your life hell. I'm going to have you in. I'm going to have you running around that track on your own. You'll never see another footballer. You'll never go to the training ground. I suggest you have a think about it and take the money. Uh, you're no good to me. You're not fit. I want you to leave the club. Didn't, took me by surprise a little bit, really, because no one had really... You know, if Dave Bassett, when Dave Bassett got rid of me at Sheffield United, he did it in a proper manner for the best intentions of me and for the football club and did it right and, and, and let me go. So I got home uh, completely in shock, to be fair, the way I'd been treated by him and ridiculed and almost bullied, really. And then I, uh, I got home to my wife and said, oh, I've met the new manager. Uh, he wants me out of the club. He wants me to uh, look at the payment that he's going to come up with and, uh, and take the money and get out of the football club. So I said I'd come home and think about it. And we were going away for the weekend, me and my wife, on, on the Friday. So I thought, well, I'll stew over it over the weekend and come to some sort of thoughts about it. But I really thought, I, I probably need, I, I don't think I can cope with this. I, not that I didn't want to just be running around the track on my own, but I didn't need that shit. I, I'm bigger and better than that. I've done, you know, I've been at Brentford for, I don't know, maybe 11 years, 10 years. I didn't deserve that treatment from that manager. So I, uh, I thought I'd have a think about it. The phone went about two hours later, and it was David Webb. He said, have you made your mind up yet? Oh, I lost the plot. I said, made my mind up. I said, I've just got home. You're more or less talking about my end of my career at Brentford, and you want, me to, you want me to come in and take the money. That's the offer. Take it or leave it. Put the phone down. So I just said to my wife, I said, that's it. I'm out of there. We're, we're, gonna, we're going down to Portsmouth for the weekend. We're stopping at Griffin Park. I got into Griffin Park, David Webb wasn't there, Polly Cates, the secretary, took me into the office. Uh, there was three post-dated checks for me, written out and signed in an envelope. And that was my leaving of Brentford, and that absolutely killed me because I didn't have time to say cheerio to anybody. I didn't even go and get my boots or my kit. I just walked out the gates, and that was the end of it. So, yeah, that was, that, that was, a, that was a tough time. And uh, I know it's business, but I think it could have been done a little bit better than that, I have to say. You know, he could have said to me, you know, you're not... You're not in my plans, you're injured, we need to sort something out. And I probably would have sorted something out, but yeah, I, was, I was, felt as if I was forced out of the club. Well, I'd, li I'd like to think that us as a club now uh, look after players a lot better than that, uh, thankfully. Yeah, absolutely, and, and yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and players are looked after, you know, and they've got agents looking, looking after them now as well, which is another thing, you know. Unfortunately, players don't go and knock on the manager's doors these days. You know, they're left out the team, the player goes straight off the training pitch, rings his agent up. The agent rings the manager up and says, why isn't he travelling? And I used to say, because he's trained shit this week. He ain't travelling, he's crap. What, what else do you want me to say? Well, he's done all right, hasn't he? No, he hasn't. Look at his art monitor. He, he hasn't worked hard this week, so he's not travelling. So you've got all that to deal with now. But, yeah, players are not protected, but they are, they are well looked after now. And they're treated a little bit, a little bit more human-like, which I wasn't. So, yeah, so that was a tough time. Good question, by the way. Right, I've uh, dug out a programme from... 17th of September 1979. Bloody hell. Where the, the player parade was one Robert Booker. Look at that. Hey. So if you don't mind, I'll just take you through a few of the, your answers to the questions. Car. 
Cortina Mark III. Correct. Yeah, you remember that? I remember that, yeah. It was a silver bronzy one. I felt like Starsky Nutch in it. <laughs> Great car. Great car. Your favourite player at the time was Johan Cruyff. Who? Johan Cruyff. Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> Johan Cruyff, yeah, what a player. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Funny you give them answers that time ago, because I probably wouldn't have said that today, but yeah, no, what a great player. Absolutely great player. So yeah, I can I can go with that one. Favourite team? Leeds United. Dirty Leeds, yeah. <laughs> Favourite away ground at the time? Fratton Park? Yeah. Is it still? Only because only my mum was bombed out of there when she was in the Land Army, so oh. I always scored at Fratton Park. I don't know why. I always scored at Fratton. I loved that ground. It was, it, was, it was a nice ground. Yeah, I used to love, love playing there. Uh, your most memorable match was your debut at Vicarage Road. Has that changed? No, I, I would say that probably. Or the whole City game, but my debut was yeah, probably one that sticks in my mind the most. Yep. Uh, just a couple more. Uh, Favourite food? Spaghetti. Homemade steak pie. Homemade steak pie. <laughs> homemade steak pie. Yeah, yeah, my mum's homemade steak pie. Yep, uh, that's true. Most difficult opponent was Alan Garner. Centre-half at Watford, yep. Yeah. I'm moving on from that. I'd probably say Mark Hughes. I was lucky enough to play against Mark Hughes at Manchester United at Old Trafford, and that was one hard git. Yeah, he was a tough, tough player. Yeah, but uh, Alan Garner was tough. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of people won't remember that name, but yeah, he was a tough, tough, tough centre half. Favourite artist, artists at the time? Pete Townsend. Absolutely. And Long live the Who. And Citizen Smith. Wolfie! 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 Yeah, yeah, great programme. Freedom for tooting. Yep. Uh, just a couple more. Which person would you most like to meet? Clint Eastwood. Did you ever meet him? No, I didn't, unfortunately. No. But, uh, yeah, I've always been a big, big, big Clint Eastwood fan. Yep. Okay, there's just one more. It says, Brilliant. any ambitions left in football? It says, to be a top professional. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Glad, glad you brought that along. Glad you brought that along. No, that's, in, that's interesting. Yeah, no, yep. To be a good professional, that was all about, really, just to carry through and be sitting here today doing this sort of stuff. 30 years later, I feel very honoured and very proud that, you know, that people have come out to do this or people are buying the book because it's a long, long time ago. Uh, and there's, you know, looking at them 70s, uh, what Dave's done, the 70s, 80s and 90s book, I'm flicking through that today and the amount of players that have been through this football club and you still get, in, get invited back, so-called cult hero or legend, it, you know, it really does give you the back of your neck a tingle. And it's, you know, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of it. So it, it, it's great to come back and do these things and just see the supporters because you only see them from the terraces. You know, I do a lot of these in Sheffield and it's, uh, I do them quite regular in Sheffield and it, it's the same sort of thing. And, you know, I've got the young lads sitting there and sometimes I'll, we'll have a break in the Q&A and I'll be, signing, I'll be signing pictures of myself and hand them out. And I look up and say, what's your name? And they say, oh, Jimmy. And I look up and there's Jimmy up there at the back door. How old are you? 24. He weren't even born when I played. And I'd say, you weren't born when I played. He went, no, but my dad brought me up singing Ooh-Ah, Bob Bukar and watching all your DVDs or Betamax or VHS, was it, in them days. <laughs> and I look at him, I think, that's quite bizarre, but quite, quite flattering, quite flattering. So, you know, I've not just come up here just to have a little chat. It's come up here because I want to be here and I want to share a few things with the fans that have, you know, been with me over the years. As we're coming to the end of the uh, end of this little session, I just want to know if there are any other questions that anybody else has got to put in to speak to Mr. Bob Bukar, even though he keeps on singing the wrong song, but we will let him get away with that for now. Any any other questions for Bob? 
Yeah, Bob, you talk you talk about early days when you, you you weren't kind of confident in your you know your ability. You know, you played against uh, you know you played against Wal um, Watford and then you went out on loan. When was it you actually thought, yeah, I've 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 put the shift in now. I've done the graft. I am the footballer that I wanted to be. Where, did you, did you ever feel that? Or when did you when did you think, yeah, I, I I'm I'm the, I'm a player now. That's a, that's a really good question because you you're trying to improve as you go along and in. In the early days, there wasn't what we call a lot of coaching. You know, you just sort of try and work it out yourself, really. You know, we had little coaching sessions, but coaches weren't what they are today where they do all these specific sessions and get the best out of you and get your fitness up. It was like just come in and run and work hard and, and train. But I suppose uh, you, ain't, you, ain't, you ain't got the time on you, mate. You got the time, mate. Uh, I would think I'd probably say when I got player of the year, after that season, he played in all them positions, and he sort of felt, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a footballer now. I've sort of, I've earned the right to be a footballer. And now it's just a case of, and you are, you're playing from year to year for your contract. You know, when Steve Perriman come in, I was injured, absolutely crapping myself because I was injured. I wasn't going to play for another six or seven months. By that time, my contract was going to run out. So now you're thinking, hang on, I don't even know the manager. My contract's running out. I'm injured. I don't know if I'm going to play again because I smashed my knee up. How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to put food on the table? That's all in the book. That's how bad it gets you. Uh, and that, 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 that can be tough. And fair play to Steve Perriman. He'd done two great things for me. He came in and saw me in the injury room and said, just to let you know, we're going to give you another year's contract without even seeing me play because he knew what I'd done for the football club and Terry Evans as well. And the second thing he did, said, you're not in my plans, you can go to Sheffield United. And that was, that, that's the turning point of your career sometime. But, you know, the modern-day footballer doesn't really have to worry about where the bills are coming from. He might worry about where the contract's coming from, but if he doesn't see this one out, he's going to get a move, and he's just going to get another contract, and he's going to get more money. So he's, if you do it right in the modern game these days, even in the championship, even in the championship, you can set yourself up for life if you do it right. Because there's a lot of distractions out there for the modern-day footballer. Social media, drugs, drink, everything. But if you're a young, a young and up-and-coming player and you want to do it right, the world's your oyster. But you've got to be a new R. Bob Bukar. Um, we're going to, obviously, uh, a couple more questions. Bill's going to finish off, but can everyone buy the book? I think that's something you need to do. And, and, um, yeah. can, I, can I just... Are we, are we wrapping it up now? We've got five minutes? Yeah, no, yeah, I was just going to obviously come on to the book because it's not the only reason we're here, but it's obviously it's a, it's a good chance to talk about the book. Uh, and a couple of people have come up and said they've already read it, and a lot of people have read it that aren't even into football. Uh, and when Greville, you know, I knew Greville for many, many years ago, but not really that personally. But, you know, when I got the phone call when I was away in Mallorca and he said, I want to write a book about you, first and foremost, I thought, why would anyone want to write a book about Bob Booker, he's just a lower league footballer. I've right? been to Sheffield United, it's no real big deal. Done okay, got into the first division. Bit of a journeyman, been at that level all his life. But started in non-league, worked in a factory, became a coach, become an assistant manager. Uh, what's he doing now? What's happened in his life while he was in football through the 70s, 80s and 90s? That's the beauty of this book. It's not just about game by game or season by season what a player's bought with his money or when, what transfer he's had. It's about what it's like to have depression. What's it like to have no money? What's it like to uh, not be able to pay the bills? 
or not have a car or how you're going to get to work. You know, everything connected with your life is, is more or less in that book as much as we could get in. So once, once Greville, and Greville done all the hard work, you know, I say it was easy for me. We used to meet sort of, you know, once a week or once a fortnight and I used to talk a load of crap into a dictaphone for two or three hours or four hours and that was, that was hard work. And I, I do apologise for the tears earlier, but we had a lot of that, didn't we? Because there was a lot of moments in my life that were tough that, uh, you know, and I did have a breakdown and things like that and it's all in them. People don't see that. They just think a footballer just drifts along in his little world, gets paid, has a nice car, has a nice wife of all the bling, has a couple of kids, nice big house. It's not always like that, especially in that era. It was completely different. And I think a lot of people have read that and gone, hang on a minute, you earned 60 quid a week when you started. Yes, I did earn 60 quid a week. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a nice insight to what it's really like to be a footballer in that era. You know, and I think you fans and people that are, are buying it will relate to that, hopefully, hopefully. So, and, and Tony there come up to me and said he'd read the book and he said, I wasn't your greatest fan to start with and I didn't really know where you was, really where you was coming from as a person, but I've read that book and I get you now and that's, that's great, you know, so that's, that's what it's all about. So, get your money out, it's 12 99 <laughs> But no, there's no, <laughs> there's, no, there's no pressure to buy it, you can get it on Amazon as well. Uh, you can get it in a Kindle. I actually read it. I've just come back from Mallorca from, for three weeks, and I actually, me and my wife read it, laying next to each other on a sunbed, uh, and she read it, and I read it, and I was laughing, and I was crying, and she was crying and laughing, and it just, you know, we're really, really proud of it, aren't we, Greville? It's, you know, it's, it's no big deal. It's not going to make me a millionaire. It's not about that. It's about just letting people know what that time might have been like, and hopefully you, Brighton fans and Sheffield United fans, can relate to that, because it's... You know, there's a lot of Sheffield United stuff in there. There's a lot of Brentford. There's a lot of Brighton stuff. Don't skip through it because you might find it a little bit interesting what's, what happens at other football clubs. So if you want to buy it, great. If you don't, no problem. I'm not here just for that. I'm just coming here to meet you guys and, and help uh, Billy and, and, and Dave. And uh, it's been great. And just one last note I say, because obviously you talked about ending Brentford on a low um, with the Dave Webb era, but the ironic thing is that he actually hired you back as in, the, in the youth team. So you end up becoming in the youth team and you signed a number of players. And I just want to say that, you know, maybe just talk about a couple of the players that you signed, because I think that this is a bit of a high that you ended Brentford on when you came in the youth team, because you actually had a, quite a good bit of success there. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, Dave Webb, and uh, as much as I, you know, I, I hated him for what he did, and... A lot of it was business, but it was, in my opinion, it was done in the wrong manner. But then I get a phone call to say that I want you to come back as youth team manager. So hang on a minute, one minute you're sacking me, and uh, a little while longer you want me to come back as youth team coach, which was like, I think the title in the book is called Back in the Game, is that right? Uh, and I was out of it once I'd left there, and that was a bad time, you know. I was locking myself away in the bedroom, uh, there was a lot of tears. What are you going to do? The phone's not going, you've got nothing to do in the daytime. What are you going to do? You've been a footballer all, all your life since 19, and now you can't go training. Didn't have, I had a trade, wouldn't have gone back to that. How am I going to get, what job am I going to do? So I started going out with my mate, uh, cleaning super drug floors, funny enough, up in London. I was getting up at 5.30 in the morning. He'd come around and grab me out my house and said, come on, you can't be moping around. He, gra he grabbed me and took me up to London, and I was uh, doing a load of work around Watford, cleaning houses and things like that, and people were looking at me going... That's Bob Booker. He used to be a professional footballer. So, yeah, I did, actually. What are you doing now? I'm cleaning floors. <laughs> and that's, that's the reality of it. That's how it can hit you. The phone doesn't go. You know, you've got to go and get yourself something. 
No one was going to employ me as a footballer again. My knee was knackered. I was finished as a footballer. But again, I'd done all that. I'd done that, uh, the work at Brentford and played for the club and been a good stalwart, hopefully, and put in a good, good shift for 10 years. And I think Webby must have done his own work and he spoke to a few people, Barry Quinn, and my name kept cropping up. So he rung me up and asked me to come back and be the youth team coach, which I absolutely jumped at. I thought that's the next best thing out of football, really, is to try and teach the youngsters how to be me or something like me with your character and your discipline and where you want to end up, really. So uh, that's when I joined as youth team coach and he called me in the office and said, that's what we're going to pay you. Uh, get on with it. The youth team's yours, all the kids. Uh, and I absolutely, absolutely loved it. But... Uh, just looking at that picture on that beer glass there, looking at Kevin O'Connor. You know, he's one of my one of my apprentices and went on to get a testimonial. Has he had a testimonial, Kevin O'Connor? That ain't going to happen again, is it? You know, we had Michael Dobson, uh, Kevin Rapley, Marcus Bent, who lost his way a little bit, thought he was a bit of a big-time Charlie, bless him, kept telling him, stay away from the women, stay away from the booze, stay away from the cars. But he never listened to me. <laughs> but so much ability, that's what frustrates me. You know, if you could just channel someone like that all the time... He, he, could, he could be, you know, he could be what he wanted to be now. He could be multi-millionaire, whatever. Uh, don't know what Kevin Rapley's doing, but we, we, had some, we had some good boys out of there, you know. And uh, Michael Dobson was a great pro. His dad worked for the football club. Uh, unfortunately, he retired after going to Walsall. But uh, I absolutely loved that job. It was, the, it was the next best thing to play in. But it was a, it was a tough job. I mean, just for instance, my, 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 I lived in Watford, so my daily, my daily, my daily route was driving to Brentford leave my house about half past five in the morning, get to Brentford about half six, quarter seven, pick the minibus up, go down to the laundry, because we didn't have a laundry at the club. We used to wash the players' kit down at the laundry, down at Isleworth. So I'd go down there on my own, pick all the kit up in baskets, put it onto the minibus, get back to Griffin Park, park down, carry all the kit in before the apprentices come in, put it out all on pegs, roll it all up before the apprentices got there, all the numbers, so we knew who was training. The apprentices would come in, We'd pack the boots, pack the kit, get it all back on the minibus, go up to the training ground, lay it all out for the pros. They would train, I would train. They would just leave it in piles everywhere. They would clear off, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, pack it all up, come back to Griffin Park, put the kids on the terraces, send them to sweep the terraces, clean the dressing rooms, clean the boots. I go back down the laundry, take the laundry for, the, for that day, come back to the training ground, uh, back to the ground, keep an eye on the apprentices. We might have a game this night. So let them go off for a couple of hours. All the dressing rooms are clean. All the kits laid out. I would lay all the first team kit out for the games and the boots. Apprentices would come back. We'd play the game. Game would finish at 10 past nine. Clean the dressing rooms. Clear the kit up. Players have gone. Apprentices leave about half past ten. By this time, I've had it. Then I either drove back home again, got home at 12 o'clock at night, back up again to come in the morning. Or I used to sleep in the ref's room on a camp bed. And people think football's all rosy. And that's what it was like. The modern-day apprentice now, he doesn't have to clean the boots. He doesn't do the terracing. Our apprentices, you might remember some of you, at half-time, when I was there, we used to get the apprentice on the pitch and put the divots back for the groundsman. How bizarre is that? Now they don't have to do anything. You know, they just come straight into a £30 million training ground and they think that's the norm. But that's the way football's moved on. But a lot of them players that, that came through that, like the Dobsons and uh, Kevin Rapley, they were good, and Kevin O'Connor. Kevin Connor is me personified. That's what I blood into him, or we blood into how he should be. Played every position, Brentford through and through, different class.
Excellent, Bob. And as we wrap it up, we just have to do one more theme because I'm still not happy about the... Oh, we're all not happy about the UR thing. So I think we need to get a rendition of the original. Go on, there we go. Everyone, let's go Cheers, everybody. Listen, I wish... Uh, cheers, Billy. Just a quick couple of thank you. Thank you to you, to you guys to getting in contact with Greville and, and, and getting us up here. Uh, I could talk all day, I could talk all afternoon, but we're going to go back and thrash the bollocks out of Millwall now. Uh, hopefully. Great to see you all. Hopefully might see you down the ground uh, later on. be great to come up again and, and carry on because there's a lot more to talk. Christmas, Christmas whatever. I'm, you know, I'm always available. And, and thanks for your support over the years and supporting me, and I really appreciate it. God bless you all. Cheers. The Besotted Christmas Social will be on Friday the 15th of December at the Fuller's Brewery. Sign up now, go to besotted.com and go to socials at the top or click on the social badge and sign up now and you'll get news ASAP. Tickets will be going on sale in a few weeks' time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.